0: Thank you for listening to this message from South Ridge Community Church located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply his word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on SouthRidgeCC.org. So let's get started.
1: Well, Christmas is in full swing, the Christmas season at least. And uh, many of you are attending gatherings Many of you are hosting gatherings. Uh, Our family, the Moore family, actually hosted a gathering Thanksgiving weekend. On, uh, in addition to Thanksgiving, on Saturday night, we had a little birthday party for one of my daughters. And it was kind of like a coffee and dessert sort of time. So we actually have one of our favorite items in the whole world is this coffee machine that's like a professional-grade coffee machine. We've had this thing for about five years. I love it so much, I brought a picture of it. Picture's up on the screen. Um, Our our family has enjoyed this for about five years, and it's probably something we never would have purchased, but we actually received it from a family member. And so um, we just love to make, like, espressos, lattes, cappuccinos. So people started to gather for our Saturday evening Thanksgiving gathering, and uh, my one daughter, who's just sort of like, the barista in the family, she just started to kind of make the um, coffee drinks and kind of pass them out to whoever wanted one, espressos, lattes, cappuccinos. No sooner had she started, than all of a sudden, boom, there was just this pop and sparks flew out of the top of the machine. (laughs) And then smoke just kind of went, (laughs) like right out of the top of the machine. Our poor, dearly departed coffee machine, finally, after five years, bit the dust. Um, And there was just something that was building up in that coffee machine, something that was unattended. And gone unattended, it blew up and it shut down. And I had this thought. I had this thought when that happened. My first thought was, bring out the French press. (laughs) And my second thought was, that's that's kind of a little bit like our hearts. It's a little bit like the human heart. Now our hearts are so much more complex, so much more beautiful, so much more wondrous than just mere machines. And and yet there's kind of a similarity there between this coffee machine and the human heart. Um, I sort of had this thought that all of us in a fallen world experience loss and disappointment. And we have those feelings and we have a choice. We can either name those feelings, and we can meaningfully express those feelings to God and to trusted people in our lives. Or we could just sort of ignore them. We could stuff them away, and we could sort of pretend that they're not there. But if we do that, then over time, we're making the choice at some point to either blow up, shut down, or both. In time, those unprocessed feelings, they stack up. They build and build and build upon each other and then there comes a point where we experience debilitating sadness or uncontrolled anger in our lives or both. We're actually in a message series called God in Flesh. God in Flesh. One of the things we're talking about in this series is that baby that was born in a manger was 100% God but also 100% human. Now, that's not just an interesting little theological factoid. One of the things that we're meant to take from that truth is that Jesus, if Jesus is the God man, if Jesus is God incarnate, then he's everything that God envisions a human being to be. He's everything that God envisioned a human being to be when he thought of human beings. And he's everything that God is making us into, you and I, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we arrive at a passage in John chapter 11. And it's a passage where we see Jesus powerfully model that part of what it means to be human is not to sort of stuff our loss and disappointment away and pretend it's not there, but to express it, to express it. It's not just okay, it's not just allowable, but it's part of what it means to be human as God sees it. That in a fallen world, when we experience loss and disappointment, that we name it, we give words to it, and we express it. So take a look in your Bibles, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I'll kind of set the stage a bit, and then... Uh, Leah's going to come up in just a little bit and read verses 17 to 45. So John chapter 11. So as we know, for three years, Jesus traveled the land of ancient Israel. He taught. He did miracles. Uh, His hometown was Nazareth. But Luke tells us he was rejected there. He was not welcome in his hometown. Jesus had brothers in Nazareth. John tells us they didn't accept him. They didn't welcome him, they rejected him, they didn't believe in him. But there is a place that the Gospel writers, time and time again, tell us that Jesus went back to. It was the closest thing to home that he had in his three-year itinerant ministry. And that place is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were like a found family for him. At their home in Bethany, Was like a a found home for him. At the beginning of John 11, we find Jesus ministering in a place called Bethany, east of the Jordan. Now that's a little confusing, because Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany. Jesus was actually serving in Bethany, east of the Jordan. Two different Bethanies. Two different Bethanies. uh, Twenty miles from each other. Now that's. Not that unusual if you sort of think about, Nathan lives in Quaker Town, New Jersey, but I drive over to Pennsylvania and there's a Quaker Town, Pennsylvania, not 30 miles from there. And so we experience the same thing. We're like, there's two towns that are named the same thing in pretty close proximity to each other. But I'll show you, you just saw a map come up on the screen. I'll actually show you uh, the location of Bethany east of the Jordan. So you'll see right there on your map, It's actually on the kind of the bottom right of the screen. You'll see Bethany east of the Jordan, then a red arrow that kind of shows you the 20-mile trek to the other Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And Jesus often frequented. And so chapter 11 opens, John 11 opens with Jesus receiving a message. He's ministering in Bethany east of the Jordan. He's with his disciples. He receives a message that Lazarus is sick, Now, he loved Lazarus. Multiple times in the text, it talks about he deeply loved Lazarus. Lazarus was like a spiritual brother to him. So we would think that pretty immediately, Jesus would jump on it, make the 20-mile walk, and get there as soon as he could to save Lazarus from sickness or even death. And instead, puzzlingly, and the disciples find it puzzling too, Jesus says, let's stay here a little longer. He actually stays there for two days before leaving to make the 20-mile trip to Bethany. Finally, after two days and the 20-mile trek, they arrive at Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Lazarus has died. And he's been in the tomb for four days. And that's where we pick up the story, which Leah will read for us, And if you have your Bible open to John 11, it's verses 17 through 45. So let's listen to what happens next.
2: On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into this world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said. And is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But the Lord, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. For he has been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had, and had seen what Jesus did believed in him.
1: Now notice that last verse, that's powerful, that the, the result of this powerful resurrection is in verse 45. Now there's, there's a bunch of things that we could draw out of this passage. There's, I said to somebody before first service, I was like, there's too much to talk about. So many rich things in this passage. But we're gonna talk about three. And the first of those three is that Jesus gave a tangible sign. In the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus gave a tangible sign. And John notes that it was a sign in verse 45. Look at verse 45 again. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Believed in him. So the point of the miracle was a demonstration of here's the king. He's the one who's bringing the kingdom. Believe in him. Have you ever kind of thought to yourself, why didn't Jesus heal everybody? I mean, if, since we know that God is passionate about restoring his broken world, when Jesus came, like, why didn't Jesus just kind of go like this? All right, like everyone here in Bethany healed. Uh, Bethany was actually called the, the house of the poor. That's what the, the name Bethany means. Uh, many people... In the ancient world, probably came to Bethany because it was a, a place where poor people were cared for. It was a place for, where people were sick and often came to be cared for and often came to die. I mean, there were sick people everywhere, but particularly in Bethany. Like, why didn't Jesus just go, okay, everyone who's sick here in Bethany healed? Now, there's a lot, of, there's a lot uh, we could talk about there. There's a lot, a lot of answers to that question that we could talk about that question. But one that the gospel writers highlight over and over and over, and you'll consistently see John point to it, is that the miracles were not an end in themselves. The miracles were signs. They were living, breathing glimpses that said, the true king of creation is here. See the miracle and see that the true king of creation is here. See that he's bringing restored relationship with God with him. So embrace him as Savior and Lord. And know that his kingdom brings restoration. Do you see it? Do you see it right in front of you? His kingdom restores or mends this broken world. And ultimately, it is his kingship that will bring restoration to all that has fallen in this world. So it was a sign It was a sign, and John notes this. When the people of Israel saw Jesus do a miracle, they were meant to think of these epic passages in the Old Testament that spoke of the restoration of everything. Passages like Isaiah 35, which I'll read a little portion of for you here. Isaiah 35, verses four to six. The Lord will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. So the people seeing Jesus' miracles were, were meant to see these things and say, oh, here it is, a picture. A picture of when God comes to intervene in his world and set things right, to make things how they should be. Or maybe they would, would have thought of a passage like Psalm 96. Here's a few verses from Psalm 96. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Can you imagine sort of seeing Jesus do a miracle and it just dawning on you? Here he is, the king of creation. And just thinking, he's not like the oppressive kings and governments of the people that just have us under their thumb. He's not like these Roman rulers who are just out for money and power. He is a king that brings restoration. And they were meant to think of these grand passages in the Old Testament and sort of see it as a signpost that pointed them forward to this great time of resurrection and reward, this great time of the restoration of the brokenness in creation. Now, if you and I get that the miracles were signs, they were not an end in themselves, then I think we get the conversation better that Jesus has with Martha. Jesus' conversation with Martha is a little bit puzzling But if we see that the miracles are signs, they point to the king is here and this is what his kingdom looks like, then I think we get a little bit better what Jesus is saying to Martha. Let's look at that conversation with Martha again. It's in verses 21 to 26. So I'm gonna read just that little section and then we'll kind of unpack it a bit. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God, who is come into the world. So do you see a couple of things? He's saying to her, look, um, you're about to see this sign of resurrection. You don't know it yet. You're about to see this sign of resurrection. Does it compel you to recognize me as the king? Does it compel you to embrace me as Lord and Savior? Because I'm the king, and I'm bringing the kingdom. So Martha starts by saying, you know, Jesus, look, if you had just left Bethany east of the Jordan a little sooner, if you just gotten here a little sooner... Then, then Lazarus could have been saved. Then she sort of adds, but look, I know that if you ask the Father, He'll give you anything that you ask, and you could, you could still make a difference, even if it means ri- uh, that you will raise Him from the dead. Jesus affirms this, and He expresses that it is His plan to raise Lazarus from the dead. He says, your brother will rise again. Then Martha recalls all the Old Testament passages that she's heard read since she was knee-high to a grasshopper in the synagogue, all these passages about a great resurrection and reward for God's people at the end of history when this age closes out. And she basically responds to Jesus, I know he'll rise on the last day. Jesus doesn't deny that that's the correct interpretation of scripture. He doesn't say, "Oh, oh, no, Martha, there's not gonna be a resurrection on the last day. Um, He doesn't deny that there will be a great resurrection at the end of history. There will be reward and resurrection for God's people. But this is not what he points Martha to in his response. He points her instead to a present reality. Jesus responds by saying, The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He basically says this. He says, look, yes, there will be resurrection and reward for God's people in the future. But joining God's people and making that future your future, it means embracing Jesus in the here and now. It means trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It means beginning restored relationship with God right now. And so eternal life is not flatly something that happens later. It's not flatly the great resurrection at the end of history. It actually begins today. It's lived out over a lifetime for each of us. And it culminates in resurrection and reward for all who belong to God. So Jesus' words to Martha are this beautiful present and future hope of resurrection through faith in him. But there's also a little bit of a knife. What he says kind of has a little bit of a knife twisting too because there's a sobering aspect to what he says. So secondly, Jesus revealed a gap to traverse. Jesus gave a tangible sign. Jesus revealed a gap to traverse. So what Jesus said drew Mary's focus from the resurrection of the dead at the end of history to the present, present restoration with re, in relationship with God, present reconnection to God by trusting in Jesus. In doing that, Jesus expressed a gap that God's people probably didn't expect. And over and over, the disciples sort of expressed they didn't expect this gap. They thought, well, surely Jesus' ministry will end with the great restoration that we read about in the Old Testament. And Jesus reinforces by drawing Mary's attention to the present relationship with God, that there will actually be an unexpected gap between Jesus's first coming and his second coming. I thought it might sort of be helpful to illustrate that uh, with these flip charts. Let's say if this flip chart here is Jesus's first coming. In Mark 1.15, Jesus actually announced the beginning of his ministry. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I remember reading that when I was like maybe a young adult and being a little puzzled. Because at the time, I pictured God's kingdom as something that was mostly or entirely a later on thing. It's like sort of an end of time thing. But what Jesus is saying here is in a new way, God has come near to reclaim his lost world, to mend his broken creation. The time that the prophets spoke of kicks off with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The kingdom of God has come near because the king is here to kick off this new era of gathering people into relationship with God. And how does that happen? When people believe the call, he actually says, repent, turn to God, believe the good news. So it starts with everyone everywhere repenting and believing. So we might sum it up this way. Jesus' first coming, if we were to call it something, we might call it the kingdom kickoff. We might call it the kingdom kickoff. God's kingdom was here. God's kingdom was not yet complete. The kickoff sort of ripples out through history and then at some point down the road is completed in the future. The focus of this kickoff and the means by which people get reconciled to God is to repent, to turn in faith to Jesus and believe. Now, we're going to travel all the way down here to the end of the age. Down here, we have Jesus' second coming, Jesus' second coming. There's a lot of verses that we could look at. Um, One that kind of pretty neatly kind of sums up God's plan for history is Peter, in just a few short verses, gives a little description of sort of. The relationship between Jesus' first coming and second coming. You might recall the story in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 3. and uh, Oh, Acts chapter 3. It's in Acts chapter 3, and Peter heals a lame man at the temple gate. And then a bunch of people gather. Wow, like a guy got healed. And then uh, Peter is basically like, well, I have a crowd here. And he basically launches into a sermon. And as part of that sermon, he says this. I'm going to read to you from Acts 3, 19 to 21. Peter says to the crowd gathered, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. And then here's kind of the part in particular I want to focus on. He says, heaven must receive him. So he just described the ascension. Heaven must receive him until... The time comes for God to restore everything. Okay, so heaven must receive him until he returns to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. All right, so we might describe the um, end of history as God restores everything. That's kind of how Peter describes it. God restores everything. Um, if we would give this a name, we had kingdom kickoff down there, we might call this kingdom. What do you think? Kingdom what? Yeah, close or maybe consummates. That that was pretty good. Somebody said kingdom close. It's close, climax, consummation. Alright, so we got the kingdom consummates, or it's fully expressed on earth as as it is in heaven or in the words of Peter, until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Now, here's the thing. Here's where we are. You and I exist in the in-between. We exist in the in-between between between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Jesus expresses a gap to traverse. Now, there's fantastically amazing, gracious things happening in this in-between. So I'll give you just a couple of snapshots of that. In Acts 1-8, before Jesus ascends, he says, you'll, he says to his disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So we just see in a number of places in the New Testament, in this in-between time, it is God's purpose to to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth, um, to send forth that call to repent and believe, turn to the true king, there will be a time when he, he will rule this world and he'll fully restore what's broken. And that's the message that we see the apostles proclaiming as they go out. And then we see the results of that in Revelation. One place is Revelation 7, um, Revelation 7 expresses that a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, have been bought by God, redeemed by Him, and are singing this song to the Lamb. One interesting thing that we saw during our year, some of, us, some of you were with us, we took a year to go through the book of Revelation. Um, if you were with us, you'll remember one of the things that we saw over and over in that is this slice of time, Repeatedly expressed in Revelation. So you would almost see like this slice of history between Jesus' first and second coming. And the book of Revelation just keeps climaxing with God restoring everything. It's like trouble, conflict, loss in different ways over and over and over. And it just sort of keeps climbing over and over to this climax of God restoring everything. And then it'll rewind and it'll kind of show you that again. And in the same way, that's a little bit what Jesus is emphasizing here. That that there's this in-between time where the incredible grace of God is at work. God opens his arms through Christ and says to the nations, come to me. Come to be received into my family. Be a part of my kingdom. I've got this great future feast planned for you and I want you to be at the table. But it's also... It's also a time when loss and disappointment is still our experience. On the negative side of things, this in between is also a time when loss and disappointment still takes place in our lives. And the reason for that is that sin and death have been defeated through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But sin and death have not yet been fully destroyed So there's a sense of, there's kind of a sobering sense of, like, here we are in between, experiencing the loss and disappointment of a fallen world, awaiting the world to be, not as it is now, but as it ought to be. And here's the interesting thing, and I think here's the stunning thing about John chapter 11. I I am encouraged, I'm inspired, when I see the resurrection of Lazarus in the passage. Very often, if I've heard a sermon on John chapter 11, it'll focus almost entirely on the resurrection part of the passage, like God raised Lazarus. Let's think about that. I think that's amazing. To me, the most stunning part of the passage is that this is where Jesus is in the passage. He's standing right here in the in-between with the people in the passage. He's standing right here. He knows In about three seconds, Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. And still, he takes time to simply be present with the people in their grief, people he loves, people who are confused, people who are puzzled, people who are saying, where's God in all of this? He takes time to simply be present with them and to weep with them. There's a bunch of times in the passage where we see people kind of expressing this idea of like, couldn't God have done better than this? Is this really the way that things are supposed to be? Um, Take a look at verse 21. One of the verses we already read was Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That sentiment is repeated over and over in the passage. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So both Mary and Martha expressed that like a little bit like this, like kind of, you know, like you would would sort of like spar with your sibling a little bit like Mary and Martha are like, gosh, couldn't you have shown up sooner, Jesus? And then verse 37, even the crowd standing around, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man kept this man from dying? So over and over we hear them express, this is really the way things are ought to be? Um, shouldn't the world be more safe, more just, more hopeful than this? And you and I get that. You and I get that. We feel the loss and disappointment every day of living in a fallen world. We feel that things aren't the way that they ought to be. They are presently simply the way they are. We feel, we feel a longing for the way things ought to be. We feel a longing for the way things will be when God sets things right. Jesus gave a tangible sign. Jesus revealed a gap to traverse. And then lastly, Jesus modeled a sacred response. Jesus modeled a sacred response. Look again at verses 32 to 35 of John 11. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and troubled. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Is there a more powerful two words in scripture than that? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. You know that's the shortest verse in the Bible? Shortest verse in the Bible, packed with power and meaning. Jesus wept. So here's Jesus at the grave of his friend. Now he's Jesus. And so you you would expect that he would say something like, here's the lesson, here's the platitude, here's the silver lining to this dark cloud of loss that you're feeling. And he doesn't say any of that, he just cries. He weeps. Earlier in the service, we heard from Amanda. She was describing these war-torn areas where there's violence, there's hunger, there's unimaginable mass need. How does God feel about that? How does God feel when he created this world peaceful and it's so ravaged with violence? How does God feel that he created this world flourishing with provision and there's hunger and scarcity? How does God feel that He created a world that's safe and hopeful and now it's ruined by trauma? John 11:35. He weeps. That's how he feels. He weeps. And we get that. We get that. You and I get that because we weep because the world is broken. And the unfortunate reality is that some of the spiritual environments that we're in, they send us the message that there's something unspiritual about being grieved by losses and disappointment. They they somehow at times can communicate like put on a happy face and say praise the Lord. And that's not what we see Jesus model. All of us experience loss and disappointment in this fallen world, to one degree or another. We feel what Jesus is weeping about. Pete Cesaro writes this in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The story of all of us is a story of loss. We lose our youthfulness. No amount of plastic surgery, cosmetics, good diet or exercise routine can stop the process of growing older. We lose our dreams. Who has not lost dreams? Dreams of a career or marriage or children for which we had hoped. We experience loss in transitions of life. Each time we change jobs, our move is a loss. Our children go more independent as they move through their life. Our influence and power decreases. Most of us in one or more moments of our lives experience catastrophic loss. Unexpectedly, a family member dies. Our spouse has an affair. We find ourselves single again after a painful divorce or breakup. We are unemployed after 25 years of stable employment. Our child is born severely handicapped. A loyal friend betrays us. Infertility, miscarriages, broken friendships, loss of memory or mental acuity, abuse. They are all losses. We grieve the many things we can't do, our limits, Some people like me lost a leg in the war in their family of origin growing up and now walk with a limp. People disappoint us. At times we're bewildered and shocked. Every person who lives in community, even with other believers, sooner or later experiences the disillusionment and grief that accompanies it. We get it. We get it. Many of the things that I just read about are things that we either have experienced in this room or we are experiencing right now like we understand at a deep heart level why Jesus is weeping. If there's one thing we all get in this room, again, to one degree or another, we understand how suffering feels. And we can be confident as we look at John chapter 11 that God is there, that God cares, that we were made to name and to meaningfully express our loss and disappointment to God and other trusted people in our lives. And that there is a time that's been appointed for all the brokenness that currently breaks our hearts to be mended. When I was a kid, I remember my brother and I used to have this contest. We went on vacation to a place called Sandy Cove in Maryland. And we used to... Go down under the water and say, um, "I can hold my breath longer than you." And that's not actually me on the screen, but it's not little me. But you can pretend. You can pretend it's little me. And we would hold our breath for like two or three minutes under the water. And like you know that feeling in your lungs, like when you hold your breath for a really long time, it starts to burn just starts to burn and you're like, I don't think I could do it any longer. And so inevitably, like one or both of us would just go, we'd just come bursting out of the water. Just like take a deep breath. And then of course, like whoever won, like you'd have to gloat, you know, you'd have to be like, ah, ah," like I won. Um, I have a question for you. Are you holding your breath? Are you holding your breath this holiday season? Um, One of the things that happens in your lungs when you hold your breath, is that the CO2 actually begins to poison your body. And so in a similar way, as we experience disappointment and loss in this broken world, are we sort of stuffing it away? Are we kind of like pushing it down? Are we kind of setting it over there and ignoring it? And if we do, it's building up and it's stacking up within us and it's poisoning our hearts and our spirits. And what Jesus modeled for us is, it's time to let that out. It's time to let that out in the safety of relationship. It's time to name those losses and disappointments. And it's time to say, God, he, here, here is my expression to you. God, I'm voicing these losses and disappointments to you. And it's time to pick a trusted person or maybe a couple of trusted people in your life and say, I've experienced this loss and disappointment. Here's what that was like. Here's what's going on inside. Now, we want to give you a super practical way to do that. So, on the Welcome Center, in the back, there's a little reflection activity. And if you said, when I said, are you holding your breath? And you kind of said, yes, I am. This activity's for you. Um, I encourage you just to stop by the Welcome Center, pick up one of these. It's called Reflection and Prayer Activity. It has a little God in Flesh logo on it. And it simply says this, quiet yourself. Honestly respond to the prompts below. And there's just some prompts that lead you to name your feelings. There's something powerful about naming your feelings. Put your feelings into words. And then voice your responses to God. So let it be a springboard to prayer. Voice your responses to God. Tell them all about it. And then before the new year, share your responses with at least one trusted loved one. All right? So just challenge you to stop by the Walkwood Center, pick this up. I think it'll be really meaningful and help, helpful to you this holiday season. In just a second, uh, Abby and the team are going to come up, and Abby is going to share a song with us that I heard at a conference a couple of years back. And um, I was telling somebody, first service, I, I went to this, um, this arts conference, and um, I was with my daughter who's, an, who's a, an artist and she had some work to do for, for her uh, college degree and so she was kind of off in a corner doing that and I was just kind of like loafing around and there were some workshops going on and I happened to just wander, just happened to wander into this workshop on a, song, a workshop on songs from the book of Joel. And I just remember I was deeply moved by the song you're about to hear, a song called I, I, I Cry Out, or I Cry Out to You. It's called Cry Out to You. And in the imagery of the book of Joel, the songwriters express, look, we all know and we all feel the world is not how it's supposed to be yet. It's how it is. But God's there, God cares, and God is steering it all towards restoration. And we were made to voice losses and disappointments to the one who cares the most. So let's reflect on the song and then I'll be back to close us in prayer.
0: Okay. There's nothing
1: We just simply ask you to open our eyes to the feelings of loss and disappointments that maybe we've ignored or hidden away. I pray, God, you would give us the discernment of your spirit to name them. Give us words to name them. And God, give us courage to voice them to you and to trust the people in our lives. God, we just simply ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for prioritizing worshiping together with others today. God bless you. We hope to see you again soon.